Well, hello and welcome to the official IMA podcast called IMA Talks. We are the Independent Media Association and we represent a group of independent media outlets in the UK and advocate for plurality, accountability in the media, and we defend the interest of independent media. This podcast really is a thematic one where we focus on an issue dealt with by independent media outlets. We've looked at uh, the current media landscape, the need for independent media. We've looked at covering industrial action and protest. And this week we are looking at covering local news. And with us, we have three guests. So we have Sam Wolby. Sam Wolby is editor-in-chief at Now Then, a role he's had since 2009 and is a director at Opus Independence. He is also a writer and interviewer for Now Then. We've also got Chiwa Chihana, who is a TV and radio host at African Voices Platform and also writes for Now Then magazine. And last but not least, we've got James Slock, who is the co-founder of Opus and Now Then and General Secretary of the Independent Media Association. So welcome everyone. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolute pleasure. So first of all, uh, this is what kind of groups you together. You all work for Now Then magazine. So can you tell can you tell us a little bit more about uh, Now Then, how it started and how it's run at the moment and what it covers specifically? Um, so I guess James and Sam as founders, would you like to say a little bit more about that? Well, I mean, Sam, you, you work on it every day, don't you? Whereas I, I, I tend to dip in and out, I suppose. So perhaps, Sam, you're your best place to give that outline. Yeah, so now then is a, um, uh, we describe it as a hyper-local publication. So it's an independent uh, magazine, uh, which was in print uh, up until the pandemic. And at some point, hopefully we'll be back in print. Um, it's a citizen-led um project uh anybody can contribute to now then so it's not um, professional writers we do have some staff writers um uh, but really it's an idea of being a platform for the, for various communities in sheffield and, and community issues and, and kind of being led by um uh, those people who sort of self-select to be involved in the project um, and directed by them as well um so we're really interested in um uh, as well as kind of local news and d- democracy, um, how how decision making works and how it can be better. Um, we're interested in arts and culture and kind of the transformative experiences that that we have uh, through the arts. Um, and we're also interested in in local economies and and supporting local business and um, really passionate about um, supporting ventures that make our city unique. Um, and and kind of pull us away from what we see as a kind of monoculture, I suppose, uh, not just in the UK, but all over the world, where you go to a city and you find exactly the same um, pasta coffees and whatever else. Um, So we're really interested in supporting the stuff that's unique about Sheffield, um, and that includes campaigning, arts, culture, independent trade, um, and just about anything in between, really. So we're going to get on to how you collect that news and how you approach uh, people in Sheffield to gather this content. But just before that, can you tell us a bit more about the inception of Now Then? How did it all start? Um, well, we often say when asked this question, we, we talk about this kind of sense of looking around the media landscape in, in Sheffield and just not really seeing anything that kind of spoke to it. So everything kind of either felt like you know, a corporately owned um, 
a corporately owned uh, newspaper like the Star or the Telegraph here in, in Sheffield, which you know is kind of news focused but also quite mainstream and lacking in kind of diversity or ideas. Um, and then the other hand, on the other sort of side of the scale, you've got a lot of kind of entertainment magazines, I suppose, that are um, quite light touch, and um, and again, it kind of covering some more of that kind of mainstream uh, cultural offer. And so we felt like there was a place for something different, and we felt like there was um, a place a place for now then in Sheffield. And one of the ways that we tried to offer some kind of distinction just just aesthetically was by going down the line of very high print production values so instead of it being something that you know fell to pieces within 30 seconds of holding it we wanted to we wanted a nice thick cover we wanted each magazine to be filled with with a featured artist's work and we really wanted something that was a kind of personalized reading experience for people uh, in Sheffield a kind of gift really because it's always been free uh, to pick up um yeah and uh so james your co-founder how did you both work together how how did did you meet did you meet professionally um no we we didn't i i think we were introduced by a, a by a friend um so it's very kind of social setting and one of the great things about sheffield is that everybody seems to know everybody else and if you don't know them you'll you'll know them soon enough um and me and sam were i think we're both interested in in music and the arts and I was putting on a lot of events at the time and uh, one of the bands that Sam used to play in played at a few of those events and mutual friends introduced us and um, and Opus was in its infancy at that point and, and we just wanted we felt like having uh, developing a media platform was just really critical for the for the ambition of Opus overall and Sam's remarkably skillful um, in, in the work that he does and so we were very lucky to find each other. Uh, that sounds very romantic then for a moment. It does. It is, it is a romantic story. <laughs> I, I, I first found out about Opus through the events that um, they used to host. That would have been in 2006, I think. Um, and I met through mutual friends and who are people who are now colleagues. I met um, two uh, two of the other co-founders of Now Then who, who don't work on the project anymore. But... They told me that they were going to set up a magazine um, and, and I'd been writing mostly music reviews and, and interviews with bands and musicians. Um, and I sort of said, oh, yeah, OK, well, if that ever happens, then give me a shout. Um, and it, I think it took about six or seven months, but I did I did hear back eventually. And so I was a, a, a contributor. I, I wrote the uh, conducted the first interview um, uh, featured music interview in issue one of, of Now Then and then sort of took on more and more responsibilities in terms of managing the project as well so it was very kind of um did just come out of really us all making it up as we we went along um, and, and sort of trying to make up create a magazine that we'd want to read ourselves which sounds a bit simplistic and, and maybe a bit cliched but that really was uh, what it was early on was just um let's do something, you know, let's give some oxygen to things that aren't out there in Sheffield. You know, there's so much thing, so many things happening here that people really aren't aware of. Um, and let's try and kind of hold a mirror up and, and show everybody why we're exciting and, and why we're kind of unique as a city, I suppose. And uh, Chiwa, how did you get on board then? I, um, uh, well, so 
Sheffield, I think Sheffield is a bit notorious, was a bit notorious for me in the sense that I couldn't find stuff that I really liked um, that was independent and, um, and was open to various demographics. Um, and so Now Then was one of those magazines that I actually liked to read. I would pick it up and it, it just resonated so much with me. Now, I found, I, I didn't know that now, now then was actually being managed by opus which is really interesting because opus has got these amazing projects that i really liked and um i was i was involved with opus on another project on on on, on ubi and through that i got to learn that actually now then is by opus as well and so i think i might have approached sam with a story at the time and said i've got a story but it tackles uh I believe it was um artists in the um artists from the african diaspora community mm-hmm. and so that's that's how i got involved and then um, i started writing uh, for for now then since then because it resonated so much with with what i thought was missing so you you t- you talk about the um link between opus and now then that's actually quite an interesting point and listeners might not know really a lot about what opus is so could you describe the role that Opus plays in the setting up of Now Then magazine? Yeah, so I suppose early on there wasn't really a distinction between those two things um, because it's just a group of people and ultimately it still is just a a relatively small group of of people Um, and really those projects are kind of initiated from within that group so we sort of go, we sort of vote with our feet and and we we go where we want to go in terms of spending our time so on on a on a basic level, it, it's kind of as simple as that. Really, Opus is the publisher and the kind of legal entity behind the magazine. Um, but really, it, it's just a it's just us us people kind of working on what we want to be working on. Um, and I think Chiwa makes a good point that we're maybe not always as good at, at kind of talking about what the relationship between those two things uh, is, um, because we sort of see it all as one big uh, one big house, I suppose. So how does funding work? I, I assume Opus is really the body through which all the funding takes place, or am I wrong? How does that work? Um, so it's, it's a central pot. Um, so everything that we do um, as Opus goes into into one place, and then we share uh, money uh, equitably amongst us all. So everybody's on the same hourly rate. So we have a one-to-one pay ratio. And if you work for Opus for more than six months, you're a member of the company. So you're effectively a kind of owner of the company as well. And in terms of funding, we have a kind of, we're a social enterprise. So we have a kind of blended funding model. So we're able to earn some earn some of our own money. And we do that, well, certainly pre-pandemic, we did that through uh, print advertising with local independent traders and some uh, leaflet distribution through our distribution service. And we took on bits of commissions and event ticketing and things like that. But then we're also able, um, because we're an asset locked, uh, limited by guarantee, a company with three directors, we're able to also uh, apply for funding from trusts and foundations and uh, public funders like the National Lottery and the Arts Council. So it's a real mix uh, of of where the the money comes from. And in terms of of work that you do, each of you, do you uh, work for uh, that platform full time, or is uh, do you just freelance across a number of platforms? Um, everybody's on PAYE, so yeah. we're 
all, we're all salaried, okay. some part-time, some full-time. And then we work with ooh, probably, uh, I would say like five or six regular freelancers. So they're people who perhaps do a bit of writing for the magazine or the designer of the magazine is actually a freelancer. Um, but mainly it's it's PAYE because, I don't know, it's just a more secure, stable way of working with people, really. And because giving equity into the organisational structure is so important to us, um, sure. that's the way we, that we would achieve that. Thank you. Uh, Chiwo, starting with you, um, I'm interested in how you... Uh gather content basically how you decide to report on stories and how you reach out to people or institutions locally to cover their their stories so Chiwa, what sorts of stories do you cover for now then um they're very varied actually um and that's a very good question um, i think it just depends on on what's topical at the moment especially and what's what's missing I suppose what's not being given attention I previously worked in the refugee sector and I realized quick enough that none of what I was learning and seeing in that sector was ever talked about positively especially um, and if there was anything that was anywhere out there about that sector and the people that um, have experience of living it, uh, it was always negative or influenced by um, negative narratives. And also add on to that myself being from a migrant background, um, that became important to me. So I, I, I tend to actually go into those spaces, into those places where um, people are less visible. And I take the, the, those, are the, those are the conversations that I like to have um, and, and see what people want to put out there that they're doing, but it prob it's probably not getting amplified enough. So for example, during the COVID-19, um, at, at, at the height of the pandemic, there was a group of refugee and asylum seeking women that were actually holding their communities together because all the outlets where people were getting supported were shutting down. And I thought that that was an important story that, that needed to be told because when we're talking about um, mutual aid, the the visibility of that was really just the white person uh, supporting these you know other people right. but there was so much community engagement and i really wanted to see that come to the fore you are also a uh, tv and radio host uh, we said with african voices platform and that's also a local medium so uh, what what sort of work do you do with with uh, with that outlet um, so um, African Voices Platform is also a social enterprise, and so I do a lot of the uh, research around what African communities, African diaspora communities are doing or what's impacting them. Presently, the focus is on, um, is on um, vaccine hesitancy. Uh, there's been a lot of vaccine hesitancy within the African diaspora communities anywhere uh, you look in, in the UK. Uh, but very specifically here in Sheffield, it's about uh, understanding why there's hesitancy and bringing in expertise from within the community itself to come and discuss or unpick 
um, the concerns that people have. Um, it might be from a religious perspective, um, could be uh, from from just from from a lot. There's a lot of uh, there's a, there's a lot of conspiracies going on at the moment, especially around what's containing the vaccines. And so it's just to demystify that and and get give people the right tools to understand in a language that they will understand in a manner that resonates with them because a lot of the talk around vaccines at the moment is very high end and maybe people will not relate but if you bring it down to a level where people will understand it based on where they're coming from then that that's really helpful so that's currently what we're doing um on, on african voice of platform so that's really interesting then so um you're essentially popularizing uh, something that's sometimes too scientific or academic. Um, how do you reach out to your audience? How do you make sure uh, you find the people, you, you basically make sure that the people you want to reach uh, do tune in and listen to the platform? So we have the fortune of um, being broadcast on um, a community television station um, which is Sheffield Live, and they 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 have a radio arm of that. Now, within the African Caribbean co- population, the elderly community, I think about fifty five percent of the elderly population actually listen to radio more than they watch television. So we tapped into that, and so we've gone to organisations and community hubs, and also just key people, elders. So the concept of elders is still very real within African diaspora communities, and you speak to elders and engage them, and they 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 cascade that information within their communities, and they feed back to us as well on what they would actually want to hear. So we go into community anchors and also just speak to the to to, to the people that that that. that engage um, with, in schools, for example, where you find predominantly uh, African diaspora people. All right. Okay. That's very interesting. Um, have you always done that sort of work? You said you worked at the, in the refugee sector. Were you involved in, um, in anything related to communications and journalism or was it more campaigning or how, um, how did you become a journalist essentially? So interestingly, no, I wasn't. Um, when I was young, I actually did want to become a journalist, interesting enough. But no, uh, I worked in the refugee sector, working, focusing mostly on policy um, and um, uh, the uh, the women's sector within the refugee sector, especially. So that's what I did. I hadn't had any experience of communication. So it's primarily been nurtured, I think, by, by now then um, and also just blogging here and there. Going back to now then, actually, uh, Sam and James, can you tell us a bit more about how you yourselves go about gathering content? How do you reach out to the population of Sheffield and find out stories on the ground that you want to cover? Mm, sure. So we we work really closely with the, the voluntary and community sector in Sheffield um, in, in the sort of widest possible definition, I suppose, of that term. So um that's, you know, from some of the biggest sort of charity uh, institutions in Sheffield down to the smallest um, campaign groups or community groups. Um, uh, uh, and we will take that approach of um, keeping an ear to the ground, I suppose. So we we sit in on a regular uh, weekly voluntary sector meeting, which is kind of across a number of different um organizations i think there's about 50 or 60 okay as many as uh, that many in the room um each week and so it's kind of listening out to to those messages and i think in particular in in within the voluntary sector um 
it's not always as good as it should be at amplifying those messages, whether they're kind of success stories and something to um, to celebrate and, and let people know, or whether they're um, um, you know something a bit more kind of pressing or um, or urgent um, in terms of messaging that needs to get out to the city. Um, we found that's been quite an effective way of um, making sure that. Um, people hear about this stuff because they're not really hearing it elsewhere. You know, they might hear it a bit through the, what I'd call the sort of legacy newspapers in Sheffield. Um, um, but I think it, it's about bringing all of that stuff together and being very clear about um, citizen journalism being a sort of pillar of now then, and that we're always here, we're always interested to hear what people think is a priority for us to be covering um whether they want to just you know throw that throw that in um and we can go go away and write something or whether they'd like to write something themselves about that um it's about sort of empowering them firstly that we agree that that's an important topic and secondly that, that they can do it themselves if they want to and we can support them um along that um and, and i suppose there's a, there's a lot of within the media um you hear a lot about um holding power to account you hear a lot about accountability in decision making um, and exposing corruption or exposing mismanagement and that sort of stuff. And, and that is really important. And we do some of that. I would say what we do more of is um, is, is trying to um, share new ideas um, about how things could be better and new systems and new ways of organising um, as human beings, I suppose. So, so to us, that's really, really important. Is um, not just um, not just showing the problems, but trying to show some possible uh, solutions as well, and, and bringing people along with that. And on the ground, what's been the reach of now? Then, what's your readership like? And have you have you ever, for example, tried to understand what the demographic is like? Are you reaching uh, mainly young people or older people? Or um, is the readership quite uh, cross-sectoral, across um, all sorts of social groups? How, how do you figure out how successful the, the magazine is on the ground reaching the people of Sheffield? Mm. So we've, um, we've tended to print between eight and 10,000 copies uh, of the magazine and, and we distribute them ourselves um, to over a thousand locations in the Sheffield area. So that's... Um, pubs, bars, cafes, doctor's surgeries, anywhere public that people could pick up a copy for free. Um, so in that sense, it, it's sometimes quite hard to measure. We do, we have done readership surveys. We tend to do them once a year. We've not done one since COVID, actually. Um, and we've seen a really interesting demographic spread. Um, and I think in part that's because it's a physical product that people can pick up. Um, and read, you know, when they're sitting having a coffee or waiting for a doctor's appointment or, or whatever else. Um, so we've always been kind of pleasantly surprised by that that demographic range that we've had. Um, we do do a lot of different types of content. So we have the sort of more news, political, local campaigns type content. Um, when we're in print, we have a food section, music, film, creative writing, um and lots of other kind of things in between i suppose um and we tend to find that the, the arts and culture content appeals to younger readers um uh, and the, the more political 
campaign-y stuff perhaps to slightly older readers. Um, the challenge we've had since COVID is not being in print and having lost a, a, a quite significant reach across the city, I suppose, which is something we're working on now. Um, so we launched a new website in July last year, um, and that's been going really well. We're really pleased with that. But I think, you know, we're we're all quite committed to reaching those readers who, you know, used to really like picking up the magazine physically um, and just being distributing the magazine ourselves um, has been a sensible financial decision. It's also been a, a, a good way of, you know, we're, we're out there every every few weeks. So we're able to see where magazines have been picked up where it's been really well received, where there have been less copies picked up and we can kind of adapt our distribution on that basis. So, yeah. Oh, that's a really interesting strategy. <laughs> it makes mm -hmm. total sense as well when you think about it. But that's interesting because I was going to ask about COVID and the impact of the, I guess, disappearing public sphere of influence uh, with a pandemic that requires you to mainly stay at home. How did you develop or adapt, I guess, your digital strategy was it for you a short-term solution and you knew you'd get back to um, physical copies or did you think right we need to strategize how can we make sure we have a website that reaches um, to try and reach at least the same number of people as before mm -hmm. um, well we're quite fortunate because we already had a new website in the pipeline and we were, we were almost a year into planning that actually so we, we sort of fast-tracked that um, I think very early on in the pandemic, um, it, it, you know, in as much as it was possible to have any kind of rational thought, because that was really challenging, as we all know, um, we were thinking, oh, certainly we'll be back to print. Um, and, and that's you know, no questions asked. Eventually that will happen. And I think that's evolved now into, um, you know, sort of um, justifying that decision or at least sense checking that we're not doing that just for our own vanity, I suppose. So we're thinking about new models and, and possibly moving away from a monthly magazine to something that's a little bit more, um, you know, potentially quarterly. Um, I'm thinking more about how it all stacks up financially and how it can be sustainable. Um, they're all things that we're still working through, I suppose, um, but certainly, as the pandemic hit, hit, we we said, well, yeah, we we need a new, we need this new website as live as soon as we can do it, really. Um, and we're fortunate as well that we we have a, a an app as well um, for um, Apple and Android devices, so we were able to use that as a bridge during the early days of the pandemic, um, and also use the push notification functionality to send out messages to users who had the app. Um, which was also really, really invaluable for us, especially early on. Now, I have a question for all three of you and uh, to do with both Now Then magazine um, and uh, and the Africa Voices platform. How how much are you supported? And this is also a question about how important you think that support is, but how are you supported in any if if you are sorry <laughs> uh, by um, local authorities by any governing bodies by local councils in Sheffield do you feel like they feel there is there is a public interest in that sort of uh, reporting and that sort of journalism 
Difficult question to answer because I, I mean, we all know how much council budgets have been cut in, in the last few years. Um, in Sheffield, it's really, really shocking. Um, I think we're operating on, it might be a quarter uh, of the budget that we received 10 years ago. Um, so I'm not making excuses for uh, a lack of funding for, for local media. But I think there's another dimension to it, which is that we're absolutely more than happy to to take the council to task when they're not doing what we think they should be doing. Um, so that creates a relationship which has an inherent tension in it. And I think there's no two ways about that because the council are also a partner for us. We work with them, you know, and especially during COVID, amplifying some really important messaging, um, public health messaging and, and everything else. And, and we would never question how important that is. Um, but on the other hand, we need to, as the sort of biggest decision-making body in the city, we have to hold them to account on things. So, um, so it's it, it's tough. Um, I think we've had more acknowledgement from the council, um, maybe in the last sort of two or three years, than we had in 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 the first ten years of existing as a magazine. Um, it was definitely a period when they were only really interested in the legacy newspapers, and there was a perception that they were their readership their whatever you sort of conceive that to be um was the the opinions that really mattered effectively about policy making or decisions they were making i think that's changing now which is good um and uh how about you chiwa in terms of african voices platform are you uh, have you had any sort of support, but even in terms of communication or advertising or pushing from uh, local groups or local authorities or anything like that? Um, I think it's 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 a mixed bag. Um, when we started out and we tried to reach reach out to the council, uh, there wasn't much engagement. Sometimes just radio silence. Um, what has happened though in the last sort of year and a half is very, the, the engagement has been there on very specific issues. So it's subject specific. Um, and um, I don't know whether that necessarily means acknowledge, being acknowledged, but um, we're in a crisis right now and the messaging needs to get there. So the public health office has been very cooperative and they're available to us. And um, so in that sense, but when it comes to other issues, um, I think there's a lot more that could be done given what the the council represents. Um, currently, there's a race um, race uh, race commission that's um, uh, inquiry, sorry, that's going on, and so uh, we've had a bit more conversations because of that, um, because of COVID as well. And we, we have had funding from them for COVID, for COVID programming, and we've had uh, the Director of Public Health engage with us in that in, in, in that sense, and his office as well. But generally, I think there's a lot more we could do in terms of community relations and the council. Yeah, yeah, well, it makes sense. But I'm still, I'm still fairly pleasantly surprised to see they've had some input. Um, and I guess the fact that they see the platform as a way to communicate and to amplify the uh, all, all their messages around COVID um, as a powerful one. I think that's that's particularly interesting. Um, as you know, it also highlights the fact that local media has a role to play in um, in amplifying 
certain messages to groups that you might not, <coughs> sorry, that you might not be able to reach otherwise. Um, so in your experience, have you, uh, and I'm speaking to all three of you, but have you ever collaborated or um, have you, have you, been uh, aware of other local media outlets from which you either drew inspiration or uh, which you felt were doing things successfully and you thought that either bridges could be built or things learned from them um, so for example you Chiwe, mm -hmm. is there a is there a local media maybe not specifically in Sheffield obviously that you feel mm -hmm. um, uh, illustrates a model that could be replicated around the country um, <laughs> is my bias showing if I say now then magazine is quite a model? Not at all, oh, no, no. no, exactly. It's, it's to try and see how now many of magazine. such <laughs> magazines exist. <laughs> I don't think I've seen anything else quite like it. Maybe because I understand how it works. I do think that now then magazine is something that um, sh should and could be replicated because it, it, it holds space for anybody and everything that's, that's led from the bottom if if you know so it's it's that narrative that comes from the people that's that's centered and i really like that so i would want to see more of that thank you and uh, sam and james in your opinion and in your experience ha is now then really singular i guess in its uh, remit or have you seen um, such outlets flourish around the country Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's absolutely things happening all over the country. I mean, I think we're in the UK, we're sort of playing catch up a little bit, particularly with the US and, and um, possibly some countries in Europe as well in terms of independent media and the visibility of, of independent media. Um, and, and I think we're, we're battling a culture of um, news being free, assumed to be free in the UK as well, uh, whereas in the US and the Netherlands, for example, people are more than happy to pay a subscription to a publication that they feel um, deserves their support or even to put some money into the pot so that other people can read that content for free. Um, we don't have that culture as much in the UK, and I think that's a real challenge for all independent media. Um, but we um, convened an independent media conference uh, four years ago now, um, and there were about 35 uh, platforms represented there and that was just really exciting to all in, be in the same room with all those people and and many of whom uh, weren't really aware of um, beforehand so I think the issue that we've got and, and the hopes that we have being part of the IMA is that we can start to join those dots a bit and start to speak with one voice um, because so many people kind of um, uh, working in their own often really small areas of the UK um, with with a really similar value set and a really similar um, sense of what they want to achieve from, from publishing. So um, that to us is really exciting and that's where we get to a space where we start to be greater than the sum of our parts, I suppose. Thank you, Sam. Um, thank you very much. Uh, James, uh, do you have anything to add to that? Um, I mean, I, I I agree with both of what Chiwei and, and Sam have said, particularly what Chiwei said, of course. I think now then's the best thing ever. Um, <laughs> but um, 
I, I think part of what we're looking for in a, 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 a when we when we talk about media plurality is that kind of uniqueness. So I I would say that you know most of the publications in the in fact all of the publications in the IMA are unique to the circumstances which led to them being created, and they're unique to the communities that they serve and and how they and how they interact with them. And I think that's something that should be should be absolutely celebrated. So I think. You know, now then is unique, but I think everybody else is also uh, unique in their own way. And Sam's touched on some of the, the issues there around uh, resource and and independent media at the moment isn't very well resourced. And it lacks, in my view, a um, enough of a variety of different ways of, of funding itself and also appealing to the likes of um state and and public funders to to help help support that um and i think there's something in in the role of strengthening independent media which is opening up new um social enterprise models of of resource for those platforms and helping people understand how best to adapt those models to support the particular environment and communities that they're working in um i think I think that the thing in a way that's unique about now then as well is the fact that it sits within a larger uh, umbrella organization. And because of that, it's able to kind of borrow from different projects. It's able to connect with a larger range of, of, of communities and people and activists and causes and concerns. And that really strengthens it. And when, you know, when now then has a bad month, it doesn't go under because it's supported by, everything else and vice versa when when other things have a bad month now then is there to support as a project support the other projects and i think there's just something really really useful about that and it's part of that's around diversification and 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 diversifying income streams but part of that's also around ensuring that you're operating on a wider remit and we've talked a little bit about the role that media has to play in democratic reform, democratic accountability and, and healthy democracies. Um, but to do that and to do that well, it needs to be connected to wider civil society. And an opus in a way is, is is that connecting force to wider civil society that really strengthens now then's output as well as its sustainability. Right. Well, that's really uh, well put. <laughs> Very exhaustive analysis of how we can make a those outlets flourish thank you very much uh, do any of you want to add anything before we conclude anything you'd like to flag for this month uh well i would like to just flag a, a campaign that that me and chiwe uh well, and sam as well have been working on around universal basic income uh, we've managed to get uh 500 uh elected representatives to sign a pledge in favor of trialing universal basic income those candidates will have been elected or not uh, today uh, across the country in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England. And, um, and a real call out, I think, for independent media to help us uh, support a campaign for universal basic income trials in the UK mm-hmm. as a way of potentially ending absolute poverty, uh, which, as we all know, is a, a growing issue with the incoming recession and the end of temporary protections in September. So a bit of a, a, a push and a flag on that particular piece of work. Agreed. And um, I think it will be interesting to see what effect uh, nearly two years of COVID have had. I'm aware that before that, the idea wasn't always popular. Um, it was 
very strongly ingrained in people's minds that it was just free money <laughs> and it would be a fundamentally unfair. And now I think, sadly, because so many people have been who have had their livelihoods and jobs either lost or at risk from the pandemic that suddenly you will see probably more interest um, and general embracing of uh, universal income of universal basic income sorry yeah I, I think I think you're absolutely right yeah it feels like the uh, the Overton window on uh, conditionality and social security is kind of moving a bit over the last 12 months we spent you know the best part of 50 billion pounds on furlough uh, and still managed to leave three million people completely yeah. uh, without support in that process. Cost of a UBI is somewhere around the 60 billion mark-ish. Um, cost of poverty in the UK is 78 billion pounds annually. And um, let's not forget that we spent 500 billion in a matter of months on propping up the banks in 2008. So it does feel like the time for a cash direct, cash first income floor for people in the UK uh, is definitely on its way. Well, fingers crossed. Let's see what happens. Thank you so much uh, to all three of you for taking part. This was uh, the IMA Talks. So you can follow the Independent Media Association on Twitter at IMA underscore press and leave us any feedback and comments. Thank you very much for listening.